Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So did Dr. Anthony Fauci just burst the NFL's bubble? How did the league respond to his claim that unless players are tested just about every day, football won't happen in 2020? And why would someone donate a healthy kidney to a complete stranger? That's right. An unbelievable story about Alan Gutcher, a Tampa baseball bat maker, who did just that. We'll talk all about it. And we've got your mailbag questions answered 100% correctly on this edition of Sports Day Tampa Bay. I'm Rick Stroud of the Tampa Bay Times, along with producer Steve Versnick. Before we get to the podcast tonight, some breaking news that happened after we recorded the podcast. Adam Schefter reporting that a Buccaneers assistant coach has tested positive for COVID-19 and that two other Tampa Bay assistants have been quarantined. Now, they say the Buccaneers assistant coach who tested positive is asymptomatic. But again, a Buccaneers assistant coach has tested positive for COVID-19, according to Adam Schefter of ESPN, and two other assistants are being quarantined currently. The coach who tested positive is asymptomatic. Uh, Later in this podcast, you'll hear a question about uh, how the NFL can keep coaches safe. That was a mailbag question we got that Rick will answer. But this is breaking news since uh, we taped the podcast earlier on Thursday evening. This broke. uh, This is about 11 o'clock on Thursday night. So, again, a Buccaneers assistant coach tested positive for COVID-19. They're being quarantined along with two other assistants, and he is asymptomatic. Um, Steve, just some news and notes before we get started on some of the questions and whatnot. Um, On, uh, I guess it was Thursday, Dr. Anthony Fauci, who's the director, of course, of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases and a member of the uh, White House Task Force, uh, told CNN that, um, you know, football players are going to need to be isolated from everybody and, and tested regularly. Uh, And he went a little further than that because of the coronavirus. He said, unless players are essentially in a bubble, which means uh, insulated from the community and that they are tested nearly every day, it would be very hard to see how football is able to be played this fall. If there's a second wave, which certainly is a possibility and which would be uh, complicated by the predictable flu season, football may not happen this year. And those comments were out there for a while and rattled me. And it, just about everybody else that's associated with the NFL uh, in one way or another, uh, either as a as a player or, or what have you. But then the NFL's chief medical officer, Dr. Alan Sills, uh, responded and he noted uh, Fauci's comments. And he didn't disagree with them uh, necessarily, but he tamped down a little bit uh, in saying that, you know, they plan to, uh, to combine with the union and uh, joint medical advisors and trying to help mitigate those health risks. He said, we're developing a comprehensive and rapid result testing program and rigorous protocols that call for shared responsibility from everyone inside our football ecosystem. Um, Obviously, you know, it's not an easy task. He talked about how they will make adjustments uh, as they as they go forward with the 2020 season. Translated, it means, hey, we're playing. (laughs) Um, I don't know how else to say it, but they they plan to make this work in. You know, in really, uh, and, and the players union came out with with a similar statement, although perhaps a little more cautious. Um, even so, you know, to, to protect players, we talked about this the other night, Steve. I mean, you're talking about a, a league that is seventy percent African American. That's a vulnerable population of this virus. Um, many of them with big body masses, three hundred pounders, also um, people of of uh, vulnerabilities in that sense. And some have may have sleep apnea or diabetes or obesity, that kind of thing. And so it is, it is a very dangerous and football, make no mistake that, you know, football is not, I mean, the intent is to collide, right? The, the intent is on every play, you have potential of 11 bodies, 10, 11 bodies slamming into each other. And that includes practice. And so there's going to be an exchange of, of, of fluids or in close contact with each other. So testing, and more testing and more testing would seem to be the thing. And right now, at least, we're still, you know, a, a good good many weeks away. They're hoping that there is a blood test, a saliva test, something that wouldn't take away from the, the public's need um, that would make it, um, 
readily available for players and other people. I mean, think about the number of people in any organization that come into contact with each other, including coaches. You'd have to be able to test them on a regular basis. I just wonder if if there will be a situation where players and, and, and teams will have to sort of quarantine themselves in the sense, not that they, they don't, um, you know, in this bubble, sort of what, you know, it's one thing for the NBA to do this for the playoffs or the NHL. It's another thing to do it for four months, right? Yeah, four months, and, you know, you're trying to travel and play games in, in other stadiums. And There you go, that travel too, you're right. You know, I mean, the, with the, by, you know, baseball is going to have the same issue of, mm-hmm. you know, they're trying to play in their home stadiums, or for the most part, there may be a team or two that has sure. to relocate. But with because it's the playoffs, because you can kind of, you know, and you've eliminated a few teams. I mean, the NBA is taking 22 teams, so eight teams aren't going. The NHL is taking 24, so seven aren't going. And with every round, you're you're sending teams home. So, you know, only a couple of teams are going to be there for the full three months, let's say it is. Um, so it's a little easier to control that. But trying to do a regular season that way becomes a lot harder. But the risk of getting the virus is, is bigger because of you're not controlled. You're not in that bubble. Exactly. And... You know, I, I like I said, things change so rapidly. I mean, we, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, um, everybody was coming back. You know, Florida was in phase two. Now Florida has had such a spike in cases, I think something like almost 3,500 um, the other day, the most they've had probably ever in, in a single day. And um, you're, you're starting to see, you know, concerns that it will now be overrun, become like the epicenter the way New York was, which has – totally flattened their curve, but um, I was uh, read and, and or talked to some people in the medical community that said, we're somewhere close around 77% of ICU beds in this state are already occupied. We're down to 23, 22% remaining. That's a dangerous level for um, healthcare workers and, and to consider, you know, um, if, if, uh, if this spike continues. And so, uh, and there are other hot hotbed states, Arizona and and others that, um, you know, you just don't know where we're headed with all this. But it's a dangerous time. Uh, again, I think the one thing the NFL has in its favor is time. Um, you know, uh, the sport itself, though, is you know close contact. There's there's no way to avoid that. And the other thing is is that you know your choices aren't real good, right? I mean, there's no guarantee when uh, a vaccine will materialize or or for that matter if one will um certainly they think they will but they don't know so you're left with you know close your business and wait and hope for something that may not ever come or learn to to try to uh mitigate and live with this virus and and no one knows how to do this because it's a novel virus and we're learning things every day uh looks like you know tampa and and maybe to follow hillsborough county might order everyone to wear a mask out in public, that sort of thing. St. Pete's um, already doing that, too. Christ yeah. Christ announced that. Right. So there's there's more and more, um, you know, information about how to how to live uh, among this, this virus while it's still here and how to limit the contact and the spread of this, which is what we want to do. But I, I just think that the NFL has, if not slowed for anybody, they'll – Look, there might be a hundred and something pages of protocols before this is all over. I think I think uh, Major League Baseball had over sixty, sixty-five pages of it. Um, they'll just keep adding to it, you know, what, whatever the best practices they think are, and it's it's going to be different. And there may not be fans, and uh, and all of that. I talked to somebody, I won't say who, um, you know, with the Bucks today, and then basically they're just keeping their fingers crossed. I mean, they don't know what else to say other than you know we're hopeful, we think it's going to be okay. You know, um, just just keep the faith. Well, what we do know is, is, you know, the the news and and the feeling of how everything's going to play out seems to change every couple days. So what we think today isn't going to be what we think by Monday or by next Friday, um, let alone, you know, six or seven or eight Fridays from now when the NFL is looking to start. So that's right. Yeah, it could be, um, you know, again, they're hopeful for a mid-July quarterback camp, rookie camp. One thing I do think, and you're seeing more and more reports to this nature, is that there won't be probably four preseason games if they play any at all. I, I'm still personally believing that they won't play the preseason, but if they do play it, it'll be it'll probably be reduced to two games. I think they want 
to make sure these players are in some semblance of shape. You can't just assume everybody um, has been working themselves the way they normally would have through OTAs and mini camps and things during the off season. So you're going to need time to get these guys into football shape, whatever that means, before you put them out there, even in a preseason game. And I still believe there's not going to be preseason games. I know there's not going to be fans at training camp. I think you can accomplish a lot in practice. Um, it won't be the same, but then this season is not the same. So we'll, we'll just kind of see how that all plays out. But yeah, some some daunting uh, daunting statements by Dr. Anthony Fauci, and um, you know it, it just goes to highlight that all these sports we we want them all back, but we want them back safely. Um, because uh, this virus is still out there, and that's the number one issue for everybody, not just athletes, but for society in general. So let's hope that uh, that people do become uh, more vigilant and, you know, for gosh sakes, uh, try to keep your distance, wear a mask when you can, and, and let's uh, try to limit the spread here. Um, I got a story before we get to your questions uh, for the mailbag. I want you guys to check this out. You can go online on TampaBay.com and read this now um, and – it's going to appear in a Sunday newspaper on the Tampa Bay Times. Uh, I wrote a story about a, a gentleman named Alan uh, Gutcher, who is a, uh, he's a lot of things. He's been a lot of things. He's been a master diver. He's from this area. He um, is really a, a wooden baseball bat maker, which, which is interesting in and of itself. And I'll tell you how he got into that. But, you know, basically this is something that we don't talk a lot about and we probably should is which is organ donation but basically he was at a traffic light that changed his life and somebody else's one day and it actually happened when um he's coming back from Lowe's right right before Thanksgiving this past year and this woman was in front of him and the light changed from from red to green and was yellow again before she was staring at a cell phone and realized that she was you know was being honked at and he was behind her and then she ran, you know, typical. She sprinted across the the, lane, the uh, intersection and left him there at the red light, so he didn't get to go. And so then another red light occurs down the road, and he gets behind the, the this uh, SUV, and on the SUV are these vinyl letters on the back of it that says, "My husband needs an O positive kidney." And you know, like most people, he kind of saw it. Thought it was, he knows his blood type. He thought it was you know, kind of a, something, something that resonated with him. But he, he, he drove on, and the car that he was following with that sign turned into a giant um, condo complex or townhomes or whatever. And he got down the road a good ways until he just, without even thinking, he said, you know, my truck kind of turned itself around. And this guy's 57 years old. He's been a blood donor since he was at Plant High School. Um, but he went back to this massive uh, townhome complex and went up and down every possible building trying to look for this uh, SUV with this sign on it. And literally, he was almost out of the development when he found it. And it had a, it had a phone number, and he called it. And the woman's name was Patsy Nielsen, and she had been spending years trying to save her husband's life, basically. Uh, her husband's name is Patrick, and... He's a guy that uh, came to the United States when he was 10. His family immigrated from Chile. And at 12, he, you know, he's diagnosed with diabetes. Um, but in July of 2017, he learned that his kidneys weren't working. Well, through the test, you know, before you can get um, a kidney transplant or, or donation, um, you have to go, you have to be, have a complete clean bill of health. And that's when they discovered he had five blockages in his heart. So he had to go to all these operations and things. I, I won't ruin the story for you, but I want people to read it. But it is amazing how these two came together, and and with COVID delaying it, uh, what what Patrick went through um, to maintain whatever normal life he could, um, just this unbelievable family uh, that Alan has, and, and and the man that he is, um, to give a complete stranger a kidney and change his entire life, and they've become like family themselves. And so uh, if you have a chance to read it, it'll be in Sunday's Tampa Bay Times. You can go online at tampabay.com. Make sure you chance to, uh, check it out. It's called um, A Chance Encounter at a Traffic Light Changes Two Lives. And it's a, it's a really uh, really heartwarming story. It's, it's this kind of story this time of year that in what's going on in 2020 we kind of need. You know, it's like... Wait, there are good hey, stories? Man. Yeah, there are. There really are. It's humanity exists out there, folks. 
Um, it's not all about, uh, you know, uh, marching and, and, uh, COVID and, uh, whatever else you see, but, uh, but yeah, so, uh, I, my thanks to them for, for really, they, they, both families just opened up their lives to me and, uh, and, uh, told me a lot of personal things and, and they want to help others that are in need of uh, organ donation. And, um, you know, dialysis is a difficult thing. Um, there are just an enormous need. I, I think for every three people that need kidney, a kidney or are on dialysis and need something, there's, there's probably, um, you know, three times, you know, I mean, it's, it's basically like three to one, right? The need is three times greater than the actual donations or kidneys available. So it's a difficult thing, but anyway, check it out. Tampa Bay times. Okay. We got lots of questions or uh, at least the best ones we're going to try to attempt to answer in the time we have left from your mail back. So let's get started. All right, Matt asks, most of the COVID concerns with regards to the NFL have focused on the players. But what about the coaches? Most are former players with underlying medical issues. And for the Bucks, what about Bruce Arians, who's had major medical issues? Can the NFL keep coaches safe? Well, uh, it's a great question, and not every coach is the same. You just mentioned Bruce Arians is, is uh, if not one of the oldest, the oldest. Uh, I think maybe him and Belichick are up there together. Um, I think and, Pete Carroll's and the oldest. Pete, Pete Carroll, Pete Carroll might be the oldest. Yeah, um, but they're all in the upper sixties, and so uh, I think Bruce will be sixty-seven or sixty-eight coming up here. And uh, it is a problem. He's a three-time cancer survivor. Um, you know, he he's a vulnerable age group to say the very least. You know, he stayed completely away, not just out of the facility. He was out of the state. He was back at his lake house in Georgia. And the only thing uh, that his wife would let him do is go play golf if he had a separate golf cart once in a while. I mean, he just he kind of just hung out, had nothing to do. Um, she would rarely, rarely even let him go to the store. But, he, you know, he's worn a mask everywhere he's gone. The thing about Bruce, um, you know, I, I'll say this. With the exception of the times that they have to go indoors, either for the heat or inclement weather, they practice outside. Uh, I think that's preferred, you know, uh, with this virus from what we understand about it. He coaches, but he coaches sort of remotely. I mean, he is um, he's a guy that will be in his golf cart and he'll go from, you know, uh, one one field to another based on what the situational, you know, maybe they're in position groups or, or, or they're playing seven on seven or whatever. I mean, he, he roams around on that thing. And he lets his coaches coach, you know, and, and there are some older coaches. I mean, Tom Moore is what almost he's like in his 80s, I think, or he's 80 years old. And so there are coaches that are vulnerable. There's a lot of African-American coaches um, and players. And so they're all going to have to be really, really careful and vigilant. And, and I and I would be concerned, but they'll have protocols, you know, for meetings. They'll have protocols, what you, what you have to do when you're inside the building will be different than what you do at practice. But for the coaches, I think they'll be wearing masks pretty much all the time. Um, then you say, well, how do you, how do you, you know, communicate? Well, you blow a whistle <laughs> and you, uh, you get close enough within six feet of everybody and let them hear you. And some of those guys have pretty good lungs, so you can hear them through a mask or, or maybe they won't have to wear one outside. I'm not sure, but, um, Bruce is going to have to be very careful. I think the travel would be interesting. I'm not, I'm not sure how that's going to go. You're going to jam these guys on, you know, some kind of airplane. Um, if they if they have to move from city to city, that's certainly a concern. Typically speaking, your head coach gets on last, and he has the first seat in first class, um, so he's not you know roaming through the the masses there uh, anyway. But um, but it is a, it is a big concern because not everybody has the same risk, and certainly and Bruce Wood and and I. Um, I think they're just going to have to be extremely vigilant, but they have a whole medical staff and trainers and, and they will follow the protocols, you know, to the nth degree and make sure that, um, you know, he, he's not too exposed. And remember too, the players are going to be tested regularly. So this is the thing, including Bruce, they'll get temperature tested every day, but they'll also hopefully, or they think by then either have a saliva test, a blood test somewhere where multiple times a week, everybody in that organization, um, you know, will be tested to make sure that, um, you know, they don't have COVID and they could be asymptomatic and have no symptoms. And that's why you need those, those tests available if they don't take them away from the public. So that's all going to be a big part of it. And, and, um, I would, I would be nervous. I mean, I, I think it's a real thing. Like Bruce 
has to be very vigilant and has to be very careful. All right, Jeff asks, if football doesn't happen this year, do you think that is good or bad for Tom Brady? More rest and recovery or just older and slower? Well, I think it's I think it's horrific. It, I think it's bad for everybody, especially Tampa Bay fans. I always say we can't have nice things. I mean, this is or would be um, the the cataclysmic scenario, right? You get Tom Brady, you let go of Jameis Winston, who's only twenty six years old, for a guy who's going to be forty three, thinks he can play till at least forty five, maybe uh, maybe beyond that, but two years anyway, and then you're going to tell me that not only does he leave a place after 20 years, he comes to Tampa Bay and doesn't get to play for a whole year. Um, as great a shape as Tom Brady keeps himself in, and as much as he loves football, I, I don't see how you get it back. I mean, you don't get that year back, right? I mean, does that mean he'd end his career that way? Probably not, but maybe, you know, who knows what he thinks a year from now. Um, the fire is there right now. And he's moved his whole family and his whole life. So I know he's committed to this organization. He has a contract. And it's for two years, not just one. But, I mean, I would think he, you know, this is something he's wanted to do. He's wanted to see what it's like to play outside of New England. He's wanted the challenge of leading a, a team and setting the tone for a new franchise and trying to get them to the Super Bowl. I don't think that that's going to abate because of the circumstances, but... I mean, are we kidding ourselves? Wouldn't you be nervous if you're a Bucks fan uh, and you're saying, oh, yeah, they didn't play, but uh, I'm sure he'll play next year at age 44. Mm, maybe not. <laughs> you know, a year can change a lot of things, man. A lot of things can happen with your family. A lot of things can happen in this world. So um, I think it would be horrible. If I'm a Bucks fan or I'm a Brady fan, I'm I'm rooting like hell that there's football and that he plays this year because – I don't know that his skills would diminish all that much. And at this point, rest, I mean, you get plenty of rest. He, but, but I always say this, that players, with the exception of Brady, but typically players don't get better and less injured as they get older. I mean, they just don't. Now, Tom has defied it because of his training methods. His methods. I saw where Alex Guerrero is in town, his uh, TB12 uh, trainer with the plyometrics and all of that and the nutrition. Um, he's going to keep himself in shape regardless, but um, – you know, at some point, I know they did the Tom versus time and Tom won, but at some point time's going to get him. And I don't think you want another year to go by between when he made the decision to leave New England and then potentially play for another team. Who knows what next year would look like. So uh, I would say y y it would be bad if, if there's no football in 2020 for Tom Brady. We'll keep it on Tom Brady and Carl asked, say Tom wins the Super Bowl for the Bucks at age 45. What is bigger? Nicholas's Masters win at 46, Nolan Ryan's no-hitter at 44, and pounding Robin Ventura at 46, or Brady's Super Bowl, or any other accomplishment at that age by another athlete. Wow, those are some good ones. Um, you know, when you look back at Jack Nicholas now, when you see, you know, at the time it seemed like he, like I said, we talked about this the other night with Tom Jones, he was the olden bear, like, oh my goodness, like how do you win a Masters at this age? But now that age doesn't seem that old, especially in, in golf. I mean, Phil Mickelson turned 50, and he's still playing competitively, and, and there's, I still think he's good enough to win one more major on the regular tour. Um, you know, Tiger Woods is inching towards that. So I, I would eliminate that. The no-hitter, um, pretty phenomenal. Uh, Nolan Ryan was a freak, there's no doubt about it, and it was fun watching him pound Robin Ventura's butt as well. Um, he's just a tough old Texan, but it's a singular game, right? It's a singular mm -hmm. performance in 30 starts. Okay. Um, you don't, you don't get a trophy for it. You, you, you know, you go into baseball history and I think he threw seven of them. That's correct. In his career. Yep. So, you know, it, it wasn't, it, it, even though it happened late, late in his career, he still could throw the ball damn near a hundred miles an hour and had wicked, wicked stuff. And, uh, you know, like I said, was was a tough old Texan, and he had done it many times before. I don't think there'd be anything that you could compare this to um, in sport. I don't. Um, I mean, I'm not aware of all the sports and the age thing, but but I would say that you know, if he wins a Super Bowl, it would be his seventh. It would be his tenth appearance in 21 years. That's almost every other year he's been in a Super Bowl and won most of them, 70 percent of them. I mean, I, I can't. And with a team. A franchise that had a three eight seven, you know, 
franchise winning percentage for for forty something years, um, and hadn't been in the playoff in twelve seasons. I mean, you put all that together in COVID, in a pandemic season when there may or may not be fans, you may be quarantined. I mean, the factors are so stacked up against him that if Tom Brady were to win a Super Bowl, and oh by the way, he'd be the first player to do it in in the team's home stadium. All of that would say to me it would be one of the greatest, you know, at least in this country, one of the greatest athletic accomplishments there, there's been. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. All right, Michael asks, Major League Baseball owners are losing gate revenue, but so are the other leagues. Are the owners just being greedy? Well, yeah. I mean, that's their job to be greedy there. That's why they call them owners. Um, I, I think there's it's, – it's business, right? And, and every time you say it's a game, I say it's a game, you say it's a business. Every time I say it's a business, you say it's a game. And right now, um, there's an awful lot of money. I, I think that – Look, I, I think Tony Clark and, and Rob Manfred, they got together and, and it looked like they were heading toward an agreement and then maybe Manfred was a, a little too giddy. It seems like they worked some things out. Um, but I've, I've never known, I haven't known many of them, but I've never been around or read about many billionaires. And that's what we're talking about when you're talking about Major League Baseball owners that got there by not, you know, not not stepping on a few uh, a few hands on the way. In other words, you know, they're in it for the money, and money dictates a lot of their philosophies in life and in business, certainly. And um, you know, it's it's not show friends; it's show business. And so, I think greed's a big part. I think there's greed on the players' end as well. I, I don't think it's mutually exclusive. I think there's. You know, some players that make $25 million, there's not that many of them. Um, they certainly could relent to the masses of the players that, you know, might average a million dollars a year and and would be happy to get whatever pro rata salary they could for how many other games there is to play. I mean, there's greed on both sides for sure. Um, but there's also, I mean, the, we talked about the difference in baseball in that- in, in the they're not partners, and that's the biggest thing here is that mm-hmm. this is not a partnership like it is with the NFL and to some degree with the NBA. Yeah, with the that other sports, with losing gate revenue, that means salary caps are going down in the future. That's um, right. You know, the players share in when with the good times and the revenue's up, they get yep. more. And when it's down, the they get times, less. Yeah. yeah. Uh, baseball does not have that model, which the owners are saying, we're not going to make as much. We want you to take a pay cut. The players are saying, in the past when you've had really good years, you haven't given us more money, so why should we take less? And that's where the rub is between the two. Mm-hmm. Well, look at it this way. Um, okay, so you're talking about the NFL, and they may not play with fans, right? And, for example, they're projecting that that could be the difference of $100 million per team, right? $100 million mm-hmm. per team. All right, so half of that revenue, close to it, 48% plus, goes to the players. So if you're at almost $100 million per team, that means next year's salary cap, right, because mm-hmm. it's based on designated gross revenues, guess what? You just lost $50 million for player costs. It just dropped. The salary cap just fell by 50 or $60 million. And I've seen projections as high as $80 million because you got to consider there's also other revenue involved with the lack of fans. So in that instance – of course the players want to play with fans, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. um, they have the same risk that the owners do. Well, but and that's they why they want benefit. to play too, because right. they need the television money to come in because exactly. If you start shortening the season and say you play half an NFL season, that's right. And if you get half your television money, take out the playoffs part, but yep. that's less yep. revenue as well, which means the players take, and I think lose. this year they're getting 48% of the, the gross revenue, right. so take 48% of that away from what the players will get paid next season. Right. And that is the difference between the sports. I mean, I, th- I think it is clearly um, the owner's the owner's game. And there was a time, look what I thought, the baseball uh, union was one of the strongest of any sport. I mean, for years and years, 
Remember Kurt Flood? You remember they had free agency long before I mean, the NFL didn't get free agency. They got what was called Plan B free agency in like 1990, right? I mean, that's you know not that long ago, I assure you. Um, and they didn't have player movement at all. So, and, and then when they did with Plan B, they could protect like the first, you know, 48 players out of 53. So you were getting scrum scrums anyway that were becoming free agents. It was backwards. So, you know, but now you look at Major League Baseball, and and, and you've said it here on this podcast many times. I'm I'm with you. I I think I think the baseball union has been weak. I don't know if it's been weak. I think it's been mismanaged. I think their their goal is to protect the four hundred million dollar deal that Bryce yeah. Harper and a few players are going to get instead of raising the overall money for the players. I, right. I, I just think their right. focus is wrong. They're they're protecting a, a select few that are making the big contracts instead of saying. I think I read somewhere, and, and the stat could be a little off, and, and we don't know baseball's numbers completely because there isn't revenue share. But they That's estimate right. the players take about 38% of the revenue in baseball. Okay. The other sports are almost 50. Yeah. The NFL is going to be 48 partners. this year. I think it's 48 and a half next year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe the NHL is 50. NBA is close to 50. If you're yeah. only taking 38% of the revenue as a players' union, then you failed as a players' union. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, assuming those numbers are correct. But if that's the case, then you failed as a players' yeah. union. I mean, I, I don't. I, I think they're a strong union, but I, I think they're what they're trying to accomplish is is wrong. It doesn't mm-hmm. protect. You're not protecting the players. You're protecting a select few that are making four hundred million dollars over a course of a ten year deal. Right, and the, the object should be to get as much money for all players and get as much money mm-hmm. for players. Period. And then how that's divvied up, you know can be based on a lot of things, but the NFL's approach, you know, was always, you know, what's the biggest piece of this pie we can divide, you know, and then we'll figure out where it goes, you know, but they, they want, and and they've done some things too, which I, I thought was questionable and I thought it helped the owners. Like they came up with a rookie salary pool. You know, there was a bunch of players that were like, Hey, how come a player who has never played a down in the NFL is guaranteed $50 million before he takes a snap when I played five years and I make peanuts compared to that, that's not fair, right? Well, you could say that, and the idea was that then, you know, the owners will will take those signing bonuses and take that money and give it to veteran players and free agency. Didn't necessarily work out that way, you know. My thing would be, hey, good for him if you can get fifty million dollars coming out of college, and you you know. But the they, what happened was the owners minimized the risk because now. I can draft a quarterback number one overall. If he doesn't work out, I don't have that much money invested in him. I just don't resign him, mm-hmm. you know, like Jameis Winston. Um, and I'm not saying, you know, Jameis Winston made $50 million or $48 million or whatever during his time here. But you know what? They didn't guarantee him $50 million when he was drafted on the day he signed. Yeah, it wasn't Sam Bradford who I think got the last exactly. big contract. Yes, yes. 2010 was the last year that um, they had those, those big uh, before the rookie salary pool. So – there's mistakes made, and, and you can you can be critical of all unions, but yeah, the, you want the idea is to get as much, whatever the pie is, I want as many pieces as I can get. Less ask, Rick. Do you think that the cancellation of the minor league season will hurt the Rays' talent pipeline long term? Young pitchers need innings to develop, and young hitters need at bats. Well, it might, but it's going to hurt everybody. Um, so, you know, from that standpoint, I, I'm not sure what you can do about it. And, uh, you know, they're talking about having, you know, some kind of reserve squad. Since you don't have minor league baseball, you're certainly going to get injuries. You're not going to have the Durham shuttle, that sort of thing. So they'll expand the rosters and maybe have 20 inactive players or whatever they're going to carry, um, however they decide to do that. So those guys will have an opportunity, at least the top-rung guys, um, you know, to be involved in baseball. Um, but I, I, you know, for all those minor leaguers, I think it's going to hurt. Obviously it's going to cost them a year of experience in professional baseball. It's going to cost them potentially an an opportunity to move up faster. Um, because they're going to be, you know, if you're in a ball or double a and you didn't have a chance to be, uh, in the majors or be looked at to come up in September, that sort of thing. Um, you're just treading water. You've lost a season and, that's the tragedy of this thing for baseball, but I, I, I'm not sure what they can do. Now the, the the Rays have been really one of the top rung organizations, and and they've done a nice job in scouting, especially recently with the number of, of you know top 100 products they uh, you know prospects they have and things like that. 
So you gotta you gotta have faith in the organization that these these guys were good players before this happened. They'll be good players coming out, but it's gonna be tough for sure. Rooting for UF asked your opinion on UF dropping Gator bait. It seems like an overreaction given it seems no one was offended and the use had zero connection to the racial background. I would like to hear an impartial viewpoint, however. You know, I saw that just before we did this podcast and, and I didn't have a lot of time um, to really study it or think about it. I I, I was aware of, of the racial connotation only because I am a what you would call, what you would term a Florida cracker in that I was born here and... Um, I think I'm a one percenter, really, when it comes to uh, being born in not just Florida, but being born in St. Petersburg, Florida, um, which is, you know, uh, central Florida. You know, there's the old story is that the further north you go in Florida, the further further south you are. But <clears throat> look, there's, um, you know, there's a lot of symbols and a lot of things um, that in my lifetime didn't think anything of. Right. Um a chain named Sambo's never thought anything of it, you know, um, with a smiling, you know, black figurine outside serving up hamburgers. I mean, you know, this is a time in our country where we are divided and there's, there's an awareness, you know, uh, and I, I know it started with the, you know, the social injustice and, um, you know, the, the deaths we've seen, uh, murders actually on, on, TV uh, filmed, you know, with George Floyd and others. And so what happens is you go down the rabbit hole a little bit, you know, and you start looking at things like, you know, Confederate monuments and bases named after Confederate soldiers and, oh, yeah, gator bait. And there are, I could show you, I think I saw it on Twitter, there's a bunch of not-so-long-ago postcards and, and, and art pieces and things where, you know, you'll see a number of black children, black people, and gators um, swimming after them and with the terms gator bait. I saw one that said gator bait, comma, Florida. Um, it's out there. And, and again, is it is it time-stamped? Yes, absolutely it is. So is the Confederate flag. So is, you know, uh, Confederate monuments to generals that fought against this country. Um, but but to minorities, to 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 blacks and and and, and African Americans who have gone through oppression for years and years, it means that that's a symbol of something different to them. You know, I went to a school, Dixie Hollins, right, named after a, a person named Dixie Hollins. I think it was a commissioner, um, and they because of the name Dixie, they our nickname is and was the Rebels. And when my oldest sister was going through school, they had a big debate about the rebel flag and they got rid of it. And this is in the mid to late seventies or mid seventies. And they used to wear, you know, the rebel flag on their shoulder pads of their football uniforms. And they come marching in and play, you know, Dixie was, wish I were in the land of cotton. I mean, that was their fight song. Everybody stood. I remember standing, clapping along, you know what the song meant. Does it mean that it was the right thing to do? Well, they got rid of the flag and they got rid of the song. Okay, they're still the rebels. Old Miss now. I think Steve, you said before the podcast that they've decided. Oh, the um, SEC. The SEC has said they're not going to play any uh, championship comp- competition in Mississippi until they change their flag, which has the because Confederate their state flag, flag has the stars and bars in it. Yes, yeah, but part of their state flag is the stars and bars. So this is what happens um, when these discussions, and they're uncomfortable, and I'm not suggesting because I covered the University of Florida. I didn't go there. I got to be honest with you, never really thought about it in those terms, even though I'm from Florida. Um, when I covered them, I, I would see you know the, the opponent run onto the field, and I would see people do the gator jaws, and they would yell gator bait, you know, and I thought that meant, well, their mascot's going to eat them up. You know, we're going to eat, eat them up, Gators, eat them up. I mean, you used to hear that cheer. So I never thought of it in those terms. But then again, I'm not a minority. I mean, this is all part of sort of an awakening that needs to take place. And whether you agree or disagree, I'm a white guy, you know, who's middle-aged at best and trending towards older. And, you know, what it means to me is not what it means to to, to somebody who grew up in this country who's been oppressed uh, and is a minority. So I would just say that, uh, you know, 
does this sometimes happen when you when you start to uh, um, you know shine the light on everything? Yes, it does, and things you didn't expect to be illuminated and never even considered um, as something that was potentially racist or contrived or its origins uh, aren't aren't as pure as you thought they were doesn't mean it's right. You know, does does not mean that. Um, and so I think you have to, I think you have to give weight to it. Obviously the university of Florida did. Um, and you're going to see, you're going to see more of this, but like I said, uh, go on Twitter. I can show you the post. They're not good. And, and that term gator bait was often used to frighten and, um, you know, intimidate minorities with, with the notion that they would sick gators on onto them and it's it's despicable but it did exist and this is this is what that's about so take it for what it's worth you can come down on any side you want to on it um but florida has made a decision i guess steve right i mean they're not gonna i don't even know what the cheer i don't remember a specific cheer about that yeah, the band I won't they play. Had, the band won't play whatever song goes with that, and then the, you know they're not. And then they had it written on on the stadium. I think yep. they had Gator Bait written on the stadium yep. or something like that. So you know, whatever. Root for your Gators. Give the Gator Chomp and all that. But um, yeah, so that's as as Forrest Gump would say. That's all I know about that. All right, Ellis asked. Jason Light receives a fair amount of criticism for the players he has drafted. But what are your thoughts on him getting the top graded wide receiver Tyler Johnson in the fifth round? I love this pick, um, and I was surprised he was there in the fifth round. I watched Tyler Johnson play in the Outback Bowl, and I thought he was phenomenal. And, um, you know, he's he's one of these guys. I'm not sure where he's going to fit in now. You know, I think you're going to see a lot of two tight end sets, and obviously you're not going to take, you know, Mike Evans or Chris Godwin off the field much. So I don't know what that third, potentially third receiver um, is going to do in this offense. I mean, you've got guys like Scotty Miller who can stretch the field for sure. Um, you know, Justin Watson is a guy that's coming back. And, you know, he, he's another um, he's another weapon that they have potentially that could to try to compete um, for that third, fourth wide receiver spot. But all I know about this guy is he's a, he's a big, big, big playmaker. And, you know, I know P.J. Fleck, who coached wide receivers for the Bucks before he got into college football as a head coach, first at, uh, uh, what was it, uh, Central Michigan? No, not Central Michigan. It was um, Western Michigan he was at, right? Yes, yes, Western Michigan. P.J. Fleck. And then on to to, uh, Minnesota. And P.J., when I talked to him, uh, and not not knowing that Tyler Johnson was going to become a Buccaneer, um, raved about, what what this guy you know has met to their program and he went through a lot of injuries early in his career um but he's a gamer and you know he's had had trouble in the past catching the ball that seems to be behind him i think he's a great pick especially where they got him and you know it's interesting because you go back and watch that bowl game the outback bowl um you know him and antoine winfield were probably the two of the best players on the field and you know Bruce Arians watched that game, and so did Todd Bowles, and they both got a guy out of it, and they both they both commented when they were drafted and saying how much they were impressed by them playing in Raymond James Stadium in that game. You know, it's not a stretch to kind of close your eyes and say, mm, "Love to see him bump his head on the goalpost for us." You know, under the pirate ship. So um, that was a pretty good audition, as it turned out, for those two guys, and uh, and I, I like the pick. Look, Jason Light has swung and missed. We know what they are. I mean, he said it before. You know, Roberto Aguayo is going to be on my tombstone, all that. Um, but look at the talent they do have. I mean, and he's had six years to acquire it. But, you know, I think for agency-wise, they've done pretty well in, in you know, making the trade for JPP. Sue did better than I expected a year ago. Um, I like love Devin White as a player. I think he's going to be phenomenal. Um, you know, you start going down the list. I mean, OJ Howard, the jury is still out, but they're going to give it one more year and picked up his fifth year option. So, you know, Mike Evans is a stud. Chris Godwin is a stud. It, it, you know, Ali Marpet's played really well. I think Ryan Jensen, who was a free agent, he's been a big addition for them. Donovan Smith has never missed really a, uh, much of a game here or there. Didn't miss a play for the first four or five years. So, there are there are some some hits as well as misses, and the hits have been pretty good. 
Now, when you lose a Jameis Winston, you know, not many GMs survive a quarterback drafted number one overall that doesn't make it. They just don't. You just you rarely get a chance to have another quarterback. But, oh, that other quarterback happens to be Tom Brady. So you got to give a little bit of that to Jason, too, but getting Bruce Arians, because I don't think Tom Brady is here without Bruce Arians. It's weird. You know, the intent on hiring Bruce Arians was to make Jameis Winston better or improve the quarterback position, and he wound up doing it a year later uh, because he was able to get Brady. So, yeah, Light, Light deserves a lot of the criticism. He doesn't doesn't duck it, but by the same token, he's he's gotten some good players, too. And uh, and I think this is going to be one of them. Look, well, he hasn't played it down yet. It's going to be tough for rookies this year. I think this will be a very difficult year to show up and do much simply because you've never even been in the building. And to think you're going to come in there maybe without a preseason, um, just making the team will be an accomplishment. But they're going to have to hit the floor with veterans running, and you're just going to have to kind of catch up when you can. But I think in time he's going to be a really good player. All right, we'll end on this one tonight. UK Bucks asked, Rick, which Bucks players have been your favorite to deal with over the years, and which players were the most difficult? Oh, boy. <laughs> who do I love and who do I want to piss off? Um, you know, this will seem like a cop-out. Maybe it is. I think most of the players I've dealt with have been great. I really do. Um, there are certainly some that stand out more than others, but we all know who they are, right? I mean, credit the Bucks over the years for having Warwick Dunn, Derek Brooks, right? Mike Allstott, um, John Lynch. Are you kidding me? I used to have a term about, hey, this dude's really nice. Well, we say, no, he's John Lynch nice. <laughs> I mean, John is just class, and you see it now, you know, as both in his broadcasting career and, and the success he's had as the general manager of the 49ers. Um, so, so for the most part, you know, I, I, I've gotten along well. Everybody goes, well, what about Sap? Well, me and Warren Sap always have gotten along okay. There was a time where he didn't talk to me for like eight weeks, but he didn't talk to anybody for eight weeks. He was just mad. And uh, he, didn't like, he didn't like what I wrote because uh, it was the year after he had a breakout year, I think in 97. He came back, I want to say in 98, and he put on – he was on the rubber chicken circuit. I mean, he was – you know, in the Pro Bowl that year, he didn't work as hard. He gained some weight, and um, he started off slow. And I asked Tony Dungy, you know, what had worn away, and I think I think he said at the time some somewhere around three twenty or three eighteen, something like that. And I go, well, what did he play at last year? He goes, he was around three hundred three. And I said, well, what do you want him to play at? He's three hundred three. I go, then why is he heavier? And he was just like, oh, he thinks it helps him against the run or whatever. And and Warren took offense and didn't talk to anybody for like eight weeks, but. But he was the smartest guy in the room. He really was when it came to football. And you had to go. His locker was right there when you walked through the door. You saw everybody came in there. Um, I enjoyed Keyshawn Johnson. A lot of people didn't. I was very close with Keyshawn. Um, as soon as he signed here, I went out to L.A. and, and hung out in his golf tournament and um, took me to his house in Calabasas. He had spent the whole day with me. Um, <clears throat> you know, that was that was a big-time uh, sort of favor for him to do that with somebody he didn't know down here. Uh, but we always got along, even though, you know, he had clashes with Gruden, he had clashes with uh, Warren Sapp and others. The guy that was the most difficult, one of the more difficult ones, I think we all know, was Aqib Tlaib. Um, you know, and Aqib, I mean, we kind of ironed out our differences, but but it didn't get in the papers or anything. But we we had a locker room encounter where it almost became physical. <laughs> And until Rondi Barber came out of the showers and ushered me out of the locker room physically to keep me probably from getting killed. Um, and But Akeem and I went at it. You know, he had some, some difficult times, uh, you know, once he got here. Uh, I think he was suspended maybe the Adderall thing. I can't remember exactly what it was. Uh, you know, there was a, obviously uh, some of his family had gotten in trouble. He had a shooting incident down in uh, – in, in the Texas area, I, I went down and investigated and wrote about. So we were, he didn't like me. He hit a taxi driver. You know, he's getting in trouble. Rookie symposium, he missed um, the plane. And, and so almost from the jump street. But he was a young guy um, that, you know, had to learn how to be a pro. And, and, oh, by the way, I mean, his numbers, if you look at his career, he's got a Hall of Fame number. I'm not kidding you now. I think if he has one more pick six um, – It'll it'll either tie or come close to tying a record in the NFL. I mean, he's that good. 
So, but you know, there's you know, there, and there's been guys that I don't want to mention that I didn't get. Along. I mean, you never get along with all sixty people in life, right? But for the most part, I would applaud the Bucks organization in the years that I've covered them. They haven't had too many bad seeds. I mean, you know, the Jeremy Stevens and you know, there were few and far between. I'm not saying they were all Boy Scouts and that um, they didn't make some mistakes and bring in some bad apples, but um, for the most part, our dealings with them have gone pretty well. I've never, I think if you, if you try to be fair, you know, um, do your job and not grind an ax for any personal, I don't have any personal reasons to, to dislike anybody. I can appreciate what they're all attempting to do. It's a high pressure business. The last thing they need is for, you know, some writer to, uh, to make life difficult for them. So we all get along pretty well. So I, but, but obviously the ones that the fans liked, I think the reason Brad Johnson, I think a lot of the reasons, in addition to these guys being winners, Simeon Rice, um, they were good people, you know, good people first and then really good players. All right, lots of great questions. We appreciate that. And you can always send those questions in to us on Twitter at SportsDayTB. You can reach me on Twitter at NFL Stroud or my email address is rstroud at tampabay.com. Let's see what else we got. Have a great weekend. Oh, make sure you check out my story again. you know, uh, about a gentleman who donated a kidney to a complete stranger. Um, You can go on TampaBay.com and read that as well. But it's it's really an inspiring story that uh, I think you'll enjoy. So check that out in the Tampa Bay Times on Sunday about Alan Gutcher um, from Tampa. It's a really, really good piece. Okay, for Steve Versnick, I'm Rick Stroud of the Tampa Bay Times. Have a great weekend and stay safe out there, folks. Make sure that you separate if you have to and wear a mask if you can. And uh, in some cities, you're going to have to do that. So let's all let's all get past this uh, coronavirus so we can have sports here soon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.